Amen. Well, if you guys could ask one question to Jesus, like if Jesus came here uh, in the flesh, maybe just one more time, just hypothetically, what, what would you ask him? If you got the chance to send an email to Jesus, a text straight to Jesus, uh, and, and, and he would listen to your, your question, what question would you ask? There's a story here in Mark chapter 10. We read about a young man who actually got to uh, be face-to-face with Jesus, and he asked this one question. This one question, and what we know from the Bible is that this particular young man, he ran to Jesus, and not only did he run to Jesus, but he actually fell at his feet. Now, this is a kind of a common thing, I think, in the ministry of Jesus, that uh, you would see maybe like sick people, uh, people that needed some kind of healing, maybe their family member was sick, they're dying, and so they would run to Jesus, and in desperation, fall on their knees, and they would request something that only Jesus could possibly do. Uh, But this young man wasn't a sick person. This was a young man who was rich, and he had some kind of status. He ran And he fell at the feet of Jesus, which I think should tell us something here, that this question that he would ask Jesus was not a spur of the moment, like trying to kill some time kind of question. Like, hey, what? Yeah, yeah. You know, like like just something that just kind of popped up out of nowhere. What What this tells me that the fact that he ran to him, the fact that he not only ran to him, but he fell at the feet of Jesus tells me that this question he would ask was a burning question for this particular person. It was a question that he's probably thought about. Maybe a question that he's, that he's just really like, it's the last thing he thinks about before going to bed at night. You guys have those moments where you just can't go to sleep because you're thinking about something and it's constant. It's day after day, season after season. It's this one thing you're wrestling through. You have no answers, but you keep asking the question. This was that particular question. And when he had the opportunity to be with Jesus, he ran to him. He said, I'm taking this chance. He ran to him. He falls at his feet. And there was a burning question, a question he wrestled with. I would say he was desperate to know the answer to right? And the question he would ask was about eternal life, eternal life. Not about how do, we, how do I get more of a, a temporary pleasures of this world? How do I get more stuff? But how do I get eternal life was this question. And the way he would ask it is this. He would say, Jesus, what must I do? What must I do to, to inherit eternal life? What strikes me, though, about this young man, and uh, we, have to under, we have to see the details in the scripture and to, to understand kind of uh, what's really happening here. This young man, like I mentioned, was a rich man. He was a wealthy man. Uh, in the Gospel of Luke, uh, Luke actually calls him a rich young ruler, which tells me that he wasn't just wealthy and affluent, financially successful, you know, um, you can call it he made bank, right? He, he was a man that actually had some status in the world. You could say he probably had some influence. He was some kind of ruler. He, he, he probably had people that served under him. Maybe he employed other people or people were working under him. He had status. He had financial success. He was affluent. He was influential. And you got to stop and wonder, why would this particular person, why would this man who was rich, who was successful, who was, you know, 
everything that much of the world attains and works and strives to become, why would this man want to fall and run to Jesus and ask the question about eternal life, right? When so much of our lives, and maybe even in the city of Chicago, you see so many people week to week, and they're really just striving to become this man. They're, they're striving to accrue more and more wealth. They just want to build and build and gain more status in their company or in their home or in their city, whatever it may be. Why would this rich young ruler ask this question? And I would pose this to us. Maybe this man, this rich young ruler, has come to the realization, this life-changing realization, that everything he's gained in life are just temporary things. Maybe he's come to the realization at a young age that I've got all this wealth and I've got all this status and all these other people are trying to become what I've attained. But maybe he's come to the realization that everything that I've gained doesn't lead to eternity. Everything I've gained is not something I could take with me into eternity. Maybe he's come to the realization that wealth can only pleasure me, if that makes sense, so much. It can only go so far. Status can only fulfill me so much. Maybe he's come to see and come to realize that everything he's gained in this world, whether it's wealth or status or just temporary, and that it has no bearing into eternity. I mean, you got to think about it. Like, he's got everything that a lot of people just want to be. He's got everything that a lot of people just want to gain. He's got it all. But he's come to this place in his life where he's re- he realized that, that wealth and status and all these things that he can purchase will never fulfill the true longing of his heart. The Bible says that we are created with eternity in our hearts. There's a longing for something deeper There's a longing for something more. And it's no matter how much wealth you accrue, no matter how much status you have, I think he's come to see that it's just not going to do the job. So he's asking the question to Jesus, then how do I get this thing called eternal life? Because everything else I think he sees is just temporary. But it's the way he would ask this question that I think we have to pause and I think there's a teaching moment here. There's, a, there's, a, there's, a, there's something about the way he would ask this question to Jesus. And I don't know if you guys caught this yet. But he, he would ask Jesus, when it comes to eternal life, he says it like this. Jesus, what must I do? What must I do to inherit eternal life? What this rich young ruler probably uh, grew, grew up with and uh, as he became rich was he, he probably began to think and convince that he can, he can whatever, like, whatever it, it is that he needs to do to get something, he can do it. He's probably come to think that, that nothing can stop him. He's probably come to think that he can purchase anything in the world. He's probably come to think that Hey, if, if there is someone that can get this, it's going to be me. So he's asking the question, what must I do? What is it that I have to do because I can do it. I can purchase it. I can, I, can do the, I can do what it takes to get eternal life. And the problem with that is this, and this is, this is, what, this is, this is where the teaching moment comes in. 
I think he, he's learning here in, re, in Jesus' response that he's learning here that when it comes to eternal life, that eternal life is not for sale. That eternal life is not another product that you purchase. That there's no amount of money this man could give to Jesus to get eternal life. See, eternal life here is Jesus was trying to teach this man that there's nothing you can do. Essentially, it's impossible with man. I, I know you're rich. I know you're used to buying things for yourself. I know you're used to working your way up the ladder to get things for yourself. But when it comes to eternal life, he, what Jesus is trying to teach this young man is essentially there is nothing you can do. There is no amount of money or status that can get you this thing called eternal life. Your, your desire is great. And what you're searching for is great. But the way you're going about it is all wrong. Because the question he's asking is, what must I do? What he's essentially saying is, how do I get eternal life apart from the one he's asking it from? How do I get eternal life apart from God? How do I get it myself is his question. He assumes he can probably earn it. He assumes that maybe if he changes some things in his life, he can get it. You ever been there? That if I change and modify some things in my life, then God would, give, God would be more in favor of me. I would be more in right standing with God. You ever been there? You at least thought that? That if I just stop this and, or start that, then, then I would somehow fit and be more closer with God. This is probably the line of thought of this young man. There's got to be some way to earn it. There's got to be some, something I can do. There's got to be something more I can achieve. And it's almost like he talks about eternal life as a product that he can purchase. And Jesus takes him to school. You're going to see how much he actually loves this young man. Jesus loved him, but he's teaching him a valuable life, um, eternity-bearing lesson here. But I think this, this shows how, how we actually tend to operate when it comes to God. You know, you, you might say right now, well, I'm not rich and I'm not a ruler. I'm not even, I, don't if I'm, I don't even know if I'm young. And you're like, I don't relate to this person at all. But I think every person can, here can relate to this man in the sense of how we approach God. Because I think if we're not careful, this is how we uh, operate with God. We, we always come to God and we always want to ask the, the question of what can I do? What must I do? How can I earn it? Because we don't believe in grace. And we don't believe in mercy. We believe in works. We believe in merit. We believe in self-righteousness. I, I, will, I will get there. I will reach God. And this is how we operate. We reject the good news of the gospel. We reject what God has done for us. And we say, God, I'll take care of it. I'll, I'll right my wrong. I'll earn my way. I'll do something. I'll change my lifestyle. I'll stop certain addictions. I'll start going to church or I'll start serving at the church. I'll, I'll start opening my Bible. And we just seem to work our way where... Just like this young man, what must I do? And Jesus is trying to teach this young man and perhaps he's trying to teach us that the starting point is not what must I do. The starting point is 
What has God done? What has God done? So he asked Jesus, what must I do? I don't know about you, but I can relate. How do I get that? You ever been there? How do I get that? How do I get where he or she has? How do I get that life? What must I do? I think about when I was a kid, does, uh, does Illinois have a place called Chuck E. Cheese? Does that exist? Okay, all right, just want to make sure. Uh, you know, I'm from California, and I grew up, you know, when I was a kid, and I remember just going to all the birthday parties were at this place called Chuck E. Cheese, right? It's a kid's play, a play area, and they have, uh, you know, basically you put in a quarter for uh, whatever game you want to play, and if you do well in that game, you know, or the better you do at, a, at the game, the more tickets you'll get, you know what I'm talking about? And so whether it's like throwing a ball through a hoop, or whether it's, you know, whatever it is, like, you will get rewarded with tickets, and what you do is that at the end of... Um, the day you gather all of your tickets you have and you would count every ticket, you would count how many you have, and then you would go to the counter, the, the, uh, you would go to the, 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 the place where they have all the gifts, all the toys, all the prizes, that's the true reward, that's the true prize, not the actual tickets, and you would give your tickets to the counter and, and with however many you got, you can, you can claim a certain prize. You guys remember this? All right. Um, and basically, like, you know, it would start off with, they, they make it pretty accessible for even kids that didn't have any skill sets with games or, you know, the, the, the ones that just really sucked at the games and just got, like, five tickets. You could still claim something. It might be a sticker, right? But you probably, you got something. And then you could work your way up. And, and it would start off with, like, whatever, stickers or candy. Uh, and then, but if you got more and more tickets, it would become bigger and bigger toys, right? And you could work your way up to, uh, you know, like, water guns and little, you know, Nerf balls and uh, bigger toys like that. And then I think I remember, if I'm not mistaken, I remember game sets. I mean, th- we're talking about thousands and thousands of tickets, like 2,000 tickets for the Nintendo like the regular Nintendo, right, from the 80s, like Nintendo game set. And I remember standing at Chuck E. Cheese, you know, and there's a, you know, even for adults, there's a place called Dave and Buster's. Do you guys have that in Illinois? In California, there's a place called Dave. It's basically the Chuck E. Cheese for grown-ups. And, you know, they, they, would, they would have games, and you would take your tickets, and you would wonder, like, how do I get that? You ever been there? How do I, how many tickets do I need to get that? I mean, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm okay with that, but what I really want is that. And I always, I always felt like if I could just play a little bit more, if I can just get a little bit better, if I can just maybe find some tickets on the ground, or I don't know. Or remember, you ever, you ever do this thing where, like, when the tickets would come out, you would just hold on and you would try to pull as many tickets as possible? Come on, right? We're, we've done that before. And, and when, like, half a ticket would, would show up, you would try to yank that ticket, make sure you got that one last ticket. And it's always about how do I get more? How do I get that? What happens is as, as grown-ups, as adults, um, you know, I think, unfortunately, what happens is, is that doesn't really change too much for us. See, what changes are the items on the wall, but what doesn't change is our greed for more. See, what changes is, 
is, is, is, it's, not, it's no longer the water gun or the Nerf ball. It's no longer the, the game set that we want. Now it's the degree. Now it's the promotion. Now it's a certain salary. Now it's recognition. Now it's like this or, or that. Now it's all of these other things. And so that wall is still there for us. It's just we've replaced these kids' stuff with things that we want. Or the things that our culture tells us, you must have this. You should have this. You deserve this. Work a little bit more and you will get this. See, what doesn't change for us is that wall. That wall is still there. It's just we've replaced it with different items. And we live in a culture, if you haven't noticed, we are obsessed with more. We're obsessed with capitalism. We live in a culture where if you just by living here in Chicago, just by living where we are, we're, we're going to be told the story. We're going to be bought into the narrative that, that you need to get more. You need to make more. You need to see more. You need to feel more. You need to eat more. And you need to go more. Anybody understand what I'm, t- what I'm talking about? Anybody felt that pressure to get more, make more, see more, feel more, eat more, go more? We live in a world that tells us that you got to have all these things only to get us to a place where we're going to realize at some point it's never enough. That everything that the world is saying you should have, they're only temporary. There's something to learn about this rich young man who has gained everything he could from the world and realizes that it has no bearing into eternity. What he wanted was something eternal. What he wanted was something that would last and not fade. And what a wonderful story for us to understand and to see that what God wants to give us does not fade. That what God wants to give us is not temporary. But what God wants to give us is eternal life. And so here's the story of a young man, and he's asking, what must I do? And because he's reaching for a great desire, a great goal to have, which is eternal life, but he's, he's going about it backwards. He's saying, what must I do? And, um, and I love Jesus' response. How does Jesus respond to this man? This is what he says. He says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. And then And then to answer his question about what must he do to have eternal life, Jesus says, well, you know the commandments. And he begins to list a few of them. And I think Jesus already knew what he was going to say. And he begins to say, well, you know, you know the commandments, do not murder, right? And he's probably thinking, I've done, I'm good, I'm good. That's check for me, right? And Jesus says, well, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And Jesus, you got to understand here, Jesus is only selecting a certain portion of what we call the Ten Commandments. And he's presenting it to this young man. And he's saying, well, you know the commandments. And he's essentially asking, have you kept these? And the rich young man, I could almost see the pride on his face. He tells Jesus, well, you know what, Jesus? I've kept all those. I've, I've done that. What else must I do? And you can tell, like, if, if, you, were, if you and I were there, you could probably see the, the self-righteousness on his face. You could probably see how he's so, 
proud of himself that I have not murdered. I have not committed adultery. Jesus, everything you just asked of me, I have kept those to the T. I have not, I, I have not dishonored my mother and father. I have, I have worked hard. I have gained great wealth. I'm, a, I'm successful. I have status. And he's, you can kind of almost like smell the, the, the pride coming out of him. And Jesus does that on purpose because here's what, here's what maybe you didn't know is that Jesus would only list four or five of those ten commandments. You know, uh, numbers five through nine, do not, or, or honor the mother of father, uh, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not testify false witness against your neighbor. And I think it's almost as if Jesus wanted this young man to see his self-righteousness. He wanted him to admit, I've kept all those. And what this young man has failed to see is that Jesus only mentioned those on purpose because I think what we're seeing here is that this young man, he might have, he might have kept a few of the commandments, but he failed to keep even the first. He failed to keep even the first commandment, which was do not have any other gods before God. Do not have any other God before God. I think what Jesus was trying to help this young man to understand and see is his own self-righteousness and that he's actually failed to obey and fulfill even the first commandment, which is to not have any of the gods before God. See, what had happened with this young man is this, that his wealth had become his God. He had, he had such wealth, and it wasn't the, the sin wasn't that he had wealth. The sin and the disobedience is what he would attach to his wealth. And you can see it because later when Jesus would ask him, would you be willing to give it all up and give to the poor? He went away sad and discouraged because he could not give it up. It was what he would attach to wealth that made it an idol. See, his wealth had become for this man what a relationship with, with God was meant to be. He had replaced God and turned to wealth. And so then he would attach all these other things to wealth. And he expected wealth to serve him in certain ways that wealth was never meant to serve him in. And, and so this is, what, this is what Tim Keller says. He says, when Jesus called this young man to give up his money, the man started to grieve because money was for him what the father was for Jesus. It was the center of his identity. To lose his money would have been to lose himself. See, wealth was his earthly salvation. It was his security. It was his comfort. It was his reputation. It was his identity. It was his status. It was his approval. It was the way he felt loved. And so then wealth had become his God. And so when, when this young man says to Jesus, well, Jesus, I've kept all these things Jesus would then say to this young man, you lack one thing. The Bible says this, that Jesus looked at him, and he loved him, and he said to him, you lack one thing. Which is quite interesting to me that Mark would record that little detail that Jesus looked at him and he loved him. Because what he says after doesn't seem like love. 
Because to tell a rich man that you lack something doesn't seem loving. Are you with me? If you go up to a rich man and say you actually lack something, that on the, on the surface, that seems like you don't love that person. But perhaps what Jesus is trying to do with this young man is actually the most loving thing he can do for us. Because isn't it true that you and I, secretly, that at times we want a God that would kind of just be our cheerleader, that would remind us of all of our achievements, that would make us feel good about our works, someone that would just come alongside of us and applaud us for our hard work and our merit and our effort, that would say, look at how much you've done. But perhaps the most loving thing our God can do for us is not to be our cheerleader. Perhaps the most loving thing God could do for us is reveal to us our need for him. To help us see areas of our life which we actually have to depend on God for. And I think so many of us, we live our day-to-day wanting a God that would just be our cheerleader. Say, keep going, you can do it. It's all about you. Live your best life. But instead, we have a God that shows us our utter dependency to him because he's a loving father. The most loving thing God can do for this young man and for you and I is not to be our cheerleader. The most loving thing God can do for us is to show us our need for him. He says to this young man, there's one thing you lack. And he says to him, he says, go sell all that you have, all that you have, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. So Jesus says to this young man, give up everything you have. You want to know how to get eternal life? You want to know what must you do? Here's what you must do. Give up everything you have and give to the poor and then come follow me. Now, I think we're smart enough to understand that what Jesus is saying is not a prescription for how every single person here gets saved. This is not how we get eternal life. This is not how we are forgiven of our sins. What Jesus is saying here essentially is that there is actually nothing we can do. Jesus knew that this young man could not do this very thing. Jesus knew that this man was limited in what he can do. In fact, he says it's impossible with man, but it's possible with God. He's trying, to, he's trying to show this young man how impossible it is for you and for me to earn our way to God. He's trying to show us how impossible it is to achieve ourselves to God. He's trying to show us how impossible it is to gain favor with God by our own works. Jesus is trying to show this man that what he needs is Jesus. The question that he should have asked is not what must I do, but what is it that you will do? Because this young man tries to get eternal life without God. And Jesus is trying to show him that it's impossible. And this young man has a hard time letting go. He goes away and he's grieved. One, one version of the Bible says that he, he went away and his, his face fell. I mean, it, like, liter- it didn't literally fall, but it, his face fell in the sense that he was so downcasted. He was so struck. He was so discouraged because he knew what his wealth had meant. It, it had become his God. 
It had become everything. His status was everything. And so to give that up was impossible for him to do. Friends, you ever have anything in your life that's hard to give up? You ever have like your mom or dad tell you to throw away something and you're like, I can't throw this away? You ever been challenged to be more generous and you find it difficult? You, you, ever, you ever find it a tension in your heart when you want to be sacrificial, you want to be more giving, you want to be more compassionate, you want to be more caring over the people, but you just have a hard time letting go of things in your life? It could be finances, it could be your time. You just have a hard time giving up your time. I know I have. What are those things in your life they have a hard time letting go of? And the real question is, why is it so hard to let go? And it's probably because we've attached all these other things to what we call time or money or status. And it's become our God. Uh, m- many of you guys know that Last summer, I started teaching my son the game of golf, and, you know, my son is going to be five this year, and so it's about time, right? Tiger Woods started at age three, and so we're, we're kind of behind, actually, so I started teaching my son how to play the game of golf, and uh, I remember one day uh, in our house, I was trying to convince him before we left to the golf course, I was trying to convince him that, hey, whenever dad tells you to do something uh, with your golf swing, you should listen to daddy, not just because I'm your dad, but because I know a little bit about the game of golf. I was trying to convince him that that daddy actually used to be really good at the game of golf. Maybe not now, but I once was, once upon a time, right? So I'm trying to convince him. And then so I said, Benjamin, look, do you see those trophies over there? I said, that's a golf trophy. Daddy won those. It's a golf trophy. Do you know why daddy won those? Because daddy's really good at the game of golf. Therefore, you should listen to what daddy teaches you. And I had this proud daddy moment. I got to, I got to brag. I got to, you know, show my son a, a bit of my, my life's accomplishments, my life work, right? It was this proud dad moment until Benjamin said, Dad, why do you only have two? <laughs> and, and then so, you know, after crying inside for about an hour, I was like, well, well because Benjamin, like, Daddy couldn't bring the, the multitude of trophies from California to Chicago. There, there's just no truck <laughs> that could fit all of my trophies. And so daddy only brought two. And these two, I have a hard time giving up. And it's true because these two trophies, even to this day, I have a hard time letting go of. And, I, and it probably didn't cost much for them to make it. But it's what I've attached to that trophy. You know what I mean? It's what I've attached to that trophy that makes it so hard to give away. Because it represented my work. It represented things I can brag about. I have a hard time throwing it away. A couple, couple weeks ago, uh, my family got a chance to go back to California. We visited my, my parents' place, and we actually stayed there uh, for some time. And, uh, and my mom, um, you know, she has, this, she has this bookshelf. And this bookshelf is just basically all of my junior golf trophies. And, and these, these trophies have, my, my mom has saved for 25 years. 25 years. And then I, you know, we were, we were kind of sleeping over their place, and I saw all these trophies. They're all, you know, they're all just full of dust, and, you know, they're breaking apart. They've been around for 25 years, some of them. And I said, Mom, you should just throw these away. And, and the whole time, I thought my mom was saving these trophies because it meant so much to her. 
But she said, really? <laughs> she was so happy. <laughs> she, and it turns out that she, didn't, she couldn't throw it away because she thought I had a hard time throwing it away. And, and so she said, you mean that you, you don't need these trophies? And then I said, wait a minute, wait, can, can I take one more look? And then I actually looked at every single trophy, where it's from, what tournament it was. And it started to uh, bring back all these different memories. And I said, you can throw away these, you can throw away these. And I still had a few trophies I was still trying to hold on to. I said, mom, I don't know, can you? I'll just throw it away. And I don't know about you, but man, time to time, there's things in our life that we hold on to a bit too tightly, do we not? There's things that may be more meaningful to us than we should let it be. Maybe there's things in our life, whether it is our finances, whether it is our time, maybe whether it's our salary or our job or our degrees, we have to be careful not to give it the kind of meaning that it was never meant to have. We, we have to be careful to not become this rich young ruler that says, well, I've kept all these other commandments only to figure, only to see that we've actually haven't even kept the first, which is to have no other gods before God. And so this rich young man, he's, man, he's getting schooled right now. He, he came to Jesus with all this, all of his achievements. He came to Jesus saying, what can I do? I'm successful. I got status. What else can I do, Jesus? And Jesus is essentially telling him nothing because eternal life is impossible with man because eternal life would be a gift of God. There would be a payment. There would be a price. But he would tell this man that it's, your, it's not your price to pay. And so this, this young man is, is learning um, about, about eternal life and how it's impossible for him. There's nothing that he can do um, to have eternal life. And so the disciples are hearing this, and they're, they're amazed, right? And, and they're amazed. They said, well, if this man cannot be saved, then who can? Who can? If, if this person who was rich cannot, on his own merit, inherit eternal life, then who can? And the reason, why they, the reason why they say that is because in that time, the disciples uh, of that time, they had this understanding that if you were wealthy, that somehow you had this divine favor with God. That if you were wealthy, there was something you did right. That somehow God had noticed you and God had blessed you. And so they thought that if you were wealthy, you were somehow close to God. So they're wondering, man, if this man who is wealthy... Who, who seems to have divine favor with God, if he cannot be saved, then they're wondering, then, then what chance do I have? What about the middle class? What about the lower class? And what Jesus is essentially telling them is that our hope for eternal life is not about your status or your achievements or your work. There's nothing you can do. Did you hear me? There's nothing you can do. There is eternity at stake, and there's nothing you and I can do. But there is hope. And the hope is that there is something God has done to get eternity to us. See, what's at stake for us is eternity, lasting forever. And there's nothing we can do 
And they call the gospel the good news. Because the good news is that it doesn't depend on what I can do, but what God has already done. So for this rich young man, there was hope. And the hope, though, was not in what he can do. The hope is in what Jesus would do. He had no clue that the man he was talking to was not just a good teacher, but he was God's beloved son that came to give eternal life. It wasn't about what the rich man could do. It was about what he thought the good teacher was, what he can do. Our hope for eternal life is completely dependent on God and what God has done for us. God had purchased our salvation. God had paid the price for our eternity. God had paid the price for our abundant life. God had paid the price for the forgiveness of our sins. And we had nothing to do with it. We did all the sinning. God did all the saving. It was what he can do. It was what he did. And it was on, about his love. This young man wanted to get eternal life apart from God. And Jesus was trying to teach him. And Jesus is teaching us that it's through Jesus we have eternal life. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, I think it goes a, a bit further to, to remind us of how we actually go about our wealth. See, it's, it's what Jesus is saying. He's not, he's not saying that, you know, if you're, if you're a Christian, then, then you shouldn't be affluent or you shouldn't be wealthy. What, what he's trying to say is it's about what do we do with our wealth? What do we attach to our wealth? He, he's trying to make sure that we don't put our hope in our wealth. 1 Timothy chapter 6 says, Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. To put our hope not in wealth, but in God. D.A. Carson a scholar, a professor says, we should value our riches in Christ so highly and our freedom from sin so highly and our gospel so highly that we would simply love to give. And so what Jesus is telling and teaching this young ruler is that there is an eternal blessing that, that waits before you. There is a heavenly blessing. There are eternal riches that wait before you, but it does not depend on what you can do, but it depends on what Jesus was about to do. When Jesus goes to the cross and he stretches out his arms and, and as he's on the cross, a perfect, obedient life, as he takes upon the sins of the world, as he is, is, is hung upon the cross, as he's suffering, being beaten and, and just uh, mocked and taking all the punishment that we deserved upon himself, he doesn't look at the world. He doesn't look at the rich young ruler. He doesn't look at you and I with frustration. He doesn't look at us with, 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 with anger. He doesn't look at us with bitterness. I want to tell you that on the cross, God looks at us with love. Just like Jesus looked at this rich young man with love, he looks at you and I, even in the midst 
of holding on to all of our self-righteousness. Look at what I've done. Look at what I've accrued. Look at my status. Look at my wealth. And, and, and you would think that Jesus would look at us with anger and bitterness and frustration, resentment, rejection. I'm here to tell you that God looks at us with love. And the way we inherit eternal life is that the one who was truly rich, there is one who actually gave up all his riches, but it wasn't this young man. You see the story of the rich young man. It's a story about a young man who was told to go give up everything, and he left disappointed because he knew that that was impossible for him. He couldn't give up everything. It meant too much for him. There was no way he's going to dump everything out for other people. And I think it shows the weight and the beauty of Jesus. Because this is what 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for our sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. You know what this rich young ruler could not do? Jesus did. Jesus, who was full of riches, I'm talking eternal heavenly riches, eternal heavenly blessings, the one who holds the world in his hands, the one who was there in creation, the one who holds everything in his hands, the one who's eternally rich, he came and stepped into time, took on flesh, and he became poor. And the scripture is teaching us that the one who was truly rich, Christ, who was truly rich, became poor so that you and I, who were actually poor, can become rich. And it doesn't mean that, it doesn't mean that when we believe in Jesus, that all of a sudden we're going to have, you know, all the wealth we need. It doesn't, it's, not, it's not saying that God's going to bless us with, with all the, the money in the world. What it's saying is, is that you will have eternal blessing. You will have eternal life. You will have eternal riches because you will have Christ. You will have God himself. What this story, what this passage reminds me and hopefully for you as we enter a new week, it's a couple things. One is to be mindful. What are some of those things in our life that we hold on too tightly? What are those, some of those things that we've made, our, whether, whether it's wealth or our time, we've made it our God? And then the second thing is, is as we enter a new week, I would ask even for, even for myself this week that we would preach to ourselves the gospel over and over again. The reminder this week over and over again that though no matter how self-righteous or, or how good I think I am, when I look to Jesus, I realize who I am in light of who God is. I look to Jesus and I'm reminded of what he gave up for me. I'm reminded that there is nothing my father would not do for me. There is no, there is no length my God would not go for me. That my God has everything I've ever longed for. That everything in the world is just temporary. 
but it's in God I have eternal riches. Preach yourself the gospel this week. Remember what God in Christ has done for you. As you, as you think about those things that are hard to let go, I want you to be reminded of what God had to let go of. Be reminded of what God had done for you. That he who was rich became poor. So that we who are poor can become rich. Would you bow your heads with me?